You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. Imagine you're a couple of working stiffs with high-paying jobs but not enough free time to pursue your climbing dreams. You sneak in quick trips and build experience, and you save and save and save until you're finally ready. A year-long sabbatical spanning the globe. This was the amazing real-life adventure of Preeti and Jeff Wright, a pair of tech engineers in their early 30s who have just wrapped up the kind of year that, for most people, would be like a full climbing career. COVID-19 threw a big wrench into their plans, but with perseverance and a lot of luck, they definitely made the most of it. The two headed to Patagonia at the start of the year, and when a big weather window finally arrived in February, they reached the summit of Cerro Torre in perfect weather. Their ascent marred only by the fact that crowds and delays compelled both of them to accept a top rope for the very last pitch. Right before COVID struck, they headed to Europe for part two of their big year, Gaston Rebuffat's six classic north faces of the Alps. Despite an eight-week lockdown in France cutting into their schedule, they still managed a rare single-season push to climb all six of these coveted routes. Again delayed by COVID, they finally headed to the Karakoram for a very late-season climb from the Nangma Valley. They were self-described expedition noobs on their very first trip to the greater ranges, and probably no one was more surprised than themselves when Jeff and Preeti summited K6 Central, an unclimbed 7,000-meter peak. Oh, and along the way, they learned to paraglide, and they flew off the Grand Chiras after climbing the Walker Spur. Lauren Delane spoke to Jeff and Preeti as they were relaxing in Hawaii, finally on their way home to Seattle, but taking their time. Awesome. So, Jeff and Preeti, thanks so much for you guys being here today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. It's great. Yeah, it seems like you're really having quite the dreamy year. Uh, Can you tell us what you've been up to for the past 11 months? Well, uh... We started a sabbatical January 2020, and we wanted basically to have a year in the life of Colin Haley. So we started off in Patagonia, and then we traveled to the Alps in Europe. And after that, we did an expedition to Pakistan. And we're finishing off the year in Hawaii because Thailand is closed, unfortunately. Yeah, and so I've read some of what you've written, Preeti, about the idea of this interspersed sabbatical or gap years versus this late-in-life retirement that we all um, tend to be planning for. And so I'm wondering how you got turned on to this idea. Um, and also, what do you think the difference is between a sabbatical and a vacation? <laughs> well, I guess I'll start with what the difference between a sabbatical and a vacation is. Uh, a vacation is a lot of fun and uh, not a whole lot of work or effort while you're on it. But a sabbatical is the idea of focusing on something else besides your job. And it's a learning opportunity. So you want to experience as much as you can in the world and travel and do things. And ours is a climbing sabbatical. So we're focusing on climbing. The idea for doing interspersed sabbaticals is that we're not 
going to be young our whole lives. So we should start now. The time is now. Jeff, do you want to add to that? We're not young now yet either. We, I was do <laughs> want to point out that we both have full-time jobs. Uh, I'm an engineer, aerospace engineer with the Boeing company. And Preeti is a software developer in Seattle, Washington. Uh, so we've been saving up for, for a long time to take a year off. And we have a lot of friends who've also done this and inspired us to take a year off to accomplish some, some goals. We really prioritize having extended stays in a handful of places instead of trying to hop all over the world, not only just to travel less, to actually physically be moving less, but to really take advantage of the places that, that we're in and soak in the culture and, and really get a good feel for the mountain ranges that we visit. So even though you said it's a climbing sabbatical, did you have any non-climbing goals for this year off? Yes, uh, We had some non-climbing goals. Go ahead. Well, one of them was to learn how to do handstands. Another is to learn a couple of different languages. Each place we went didn't speak English as their primary language. So first it was Spanish, then French. Jeff already knows a lot of French, and I learned a lot during lockdown. And then in Pakistan, there's Urdu. That sounds really fun. And um, so everything that I saw on your blog looked like you guys had done a lot of meticulous planning for this. Was there... Um, I'm sure COVID changed some of your plans along the way, but was there a lot of room for spontaneity or was this a super detailed uh, pre-planned year? We pre-planned it quite a bit, knowing that we wanted to do longer, more extended stays in different places. Luckily, the places we wanted to go, um, we didn't really have any trouble going there. Obviously, we started in Patagonia and COVID hadn't struck. And then we traveled to France and we were planning on spending four months in France. And then we got uh, hit by COVID and went into lockdown. So we spent eight weeks in our apartment, but we got to extend our visa and we stayed for uh, two more months. Um, and we we're just watching to see if we could go to the Karakoram. And when they finally opened for tourism again, because we already had our visas that we had applied for in January, uh, we could still go. And so we jumped on that opportunity really quickly. Uh, but everything was um, loosely planned out, and we got to follow the plan of going to each of these places. And we had goals in each of the places that we wanted to climb certain peaks, like in Patagonia, we wanted to climb Territory. That was the big one. I actually got a Live Your Dream grant to go climb that, and it was awesome because I got to go climb it, and I held up the flag at the top and everything. It was, oh man, it was beautiful. And then... Our goal in the Alps was to climb the six uh, classic north faces of the Alps. And that was a little tricky to do around uh, COVID because we we're watching weather the whole time. And Switzerland, luckily, never went into, into lockdown. But it was a little tricky to make sure that we could accomplish that with conditions, with weather, and then with lockdown status, too. And it didn't, we actually, we got it done. I didn't think it was going to happen. And it turned out to not be too tricky. And then our big goal, that was all leading up to leading, uh, to going on our expedition in the Karakoram to the Masherbrum range to climb K6. And our goal was to climb K6 Central, an unclimbed 7,000 meter peak. And our stretch goal was to traverse the whole ridgeline, but we didn't have the weather for that uh, in October. 
because it was so windy and cold. We had been planning the expedition earlier in the year, but we had to delay it because Pakistan wasn't open for tourism until a little bit later. And so you said that the um, weather in the Alps was one of the challenges, but what about in Shelton? Did you guys get lucky with good conditions uh, for Cerro Torre? Oh, yeah. January was rough, pretty much a wash. We climbed a, uh, a couple of the smaller peaks. And then February, we had two major weather windows where people really got a lot of stuff done. And the first window was maybe four or five days. I mean, massive window, but it was really cold, really snowy, really icy. So the only major route that was really in condition was the Via de Ragni on Servatore. So fortunately or unfortunately, that route was really crowded because a lot of the, the pure rock so routes were not in condition. But it was nice to be in a conga line where you had people in front kind of doing the heavy lifting, digging the tunnel to the summit. And a, a lot of the ice pitches are really hard blue ice. So if when you have people in front of you, they kind of bash away the ice and, you know, start hooking it out. Uh, so that made it a lot easier for us. One of the cool things is we got to see uh, Fabi Bull fly off of Cerro Torre. And he was the first person to climb the Ragni route and then fly off paragliding. And that was so inspiring to see him paraglide off of Saratori. He was uh, Colin Haley's first climbing partner uh, this season in uh, Patagonia. And I asked him so many questions about his paraglider afterwards. We saw him handling it on the ground. And then when we went to France, man, one of my dreams was to learn how to paraglide. Uh, and we got to learn. And so in the matter of like one month in Chamonix, we picked up paragliding and it was awesome. Yeah, we should have mentioned that. That was a major goal for the sabbatical. It took like four weeks of lessons and practicing to get decent at it. We brought the paragliders to all over Europe and to Pakistan. It's everywhere. We thought about flying off a of K6, but... It's just it's just too heavy. The packs are already too heavy, so four extra pounds was was kind of a deal breaker. And although it, four pounds for a paraglider is like crazy light, I'm so impressed that paragliding equipment has become so light. It's much more applicable to climb and fly now. Yeah, that seems like such a cool way to um, add a huge thing to your climbs. I had no idea that uh, the equipment had gotten that light. Four pounds feels like something that you can really actually justify bringing on some of these larger cars with you yeah it was like a really cool way to add to that very justifiable even on technical climbs uh we took it on the walker spur on the the grand giraffe in chamonix yeah that was just a dream so cool we flew off grand giraffe in the morning and usually the the descent off of that is is pretty heinous so flying off was was amazing People wait specifically for the descent to be in good conditions on the Grand Giraffe. Then we skipped all of that. And within, uh, you know, 20 minutes, we were on the ground trying to take off all of our heavy layers because it was so warm and pleasant down in the valley. Yeah, I feel like most climbers dream of just being able to fly off the summit and not have to deal with the technical descent. So that's <laughs> maybe the way of the future. Um, and so it seems like 
like you said, you had a lot of these trips already pretty planned out. Did you have a date that you were set to leave Shelton to head straight to Europe? Or did you leave some flexibility for conditions there? It seems like things ended up being timed really interestingly so that when you got to Europe, you had a little bit of time to climb before um, France's lockdown. We had uh, the date set. Everything was, was pre-planned because booking, booking lodging and airfare, we really wanted to do that early. And so we had a hard date that was that was immovable. But yeah, that's a good point. If you do go to Chalpen, uh, you've been there, Lauren. I mean, you really want to be flexible. Yeah, the worst thing to do is be there for uh, two months waiting for the weather to come and then fly out right before it shows up. There's so many stories of people desperately trying to change their flights in El Chalpen because they see the window coming and throwing money out the window to change their flight. But we committed to leaving at the end of February. And so we arrived in Europe, and amazingly, the weather for the Eiger was pretty good pretty quickly. And we had been eyeing that up as the first goal because each of the six north faces has a slightly different conditions/slash weather window for it. And the Eiger is one that you definitely want to be a bit cold when you're going to climb. So that was the first one that we wanted to do. There were some threats of like, oh, hey, there's this virus coming over from China. Uh, maybe things are going to get a bit hairy over here. But nah, this is Chamonix. This is the sports capital of the world. They're not going to shut down here. They're not going to shut down in Grindelwald in Switzerland. So let's go climb this thing while the weather is good. So we uh, rode the, the train up to... So there's a huge ski resort near the Eiger. So you can take a train up to the, um, actually, you can take it all the way up to the top. Anyway, so we took the train up to take a look at the approach. And then the next day, the train shut down. So we had to ski up with our backcountry setup to actually start the climb the next day. We we had been watching the Eiger conditions really through Instagram. That's where we get most of our beta, conditions beta. So in January... A lot of people climbed the 38 route on the Eiger North Base, so we we knew that wintry wintry conditions were were pretty good. Uh, usually spring is the best time, and but we 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 kept our eyes open, and March was actually really amazing. We caught it right at the tail end of winter, mm-hmm. so the days were a little longer, mm-hmm. and a, a little bit warmer, but still still freezing cold. It's hard to get conditions perfect for something like the Eiger or a lot of alpine climbs for that matter because either the bottom will be too snowy or it'll be too wet. Uh, and over the course of like the thousands of meters of the climb, you can't have perfect conditions for every spot. But I think we got like as good conditions as we could hope for. Yeah, so for people not familiar with the north faces of the Alps in general, can you describe the climbing a little bit? We weren't familiar with them either. Uh, I think a lot of Americans don't know a lot about Alpine history in the Alp in the Alps, where obviously Alpinism was born. The players, the climbs, the peaks. I mean, before the sabbatical, I couldn't. I didn't know about the six north faces. I couldn't list them off. So learning about what the peaks are and what the routes are, because this was this is a list that Gaston Rebouffat, the famous French alpinist came up with in his book, Etoile et Tempête, uh, Starlight and Storm. 
which is an amazing read. But he he talks about coming up with this list. I think all climbed in the 30s. Uh, so these are pretty pretty old classic routes that are still difficult even by by modern definitions for and we thought that this would be a good way to get a taste of the alps because when can we normally go to the alps and spend this amount of time to watch conditions and make sure that it's a a good time to go and get the good weather uh we really need an extended stay i think in europe so when we're taking a sabbatical from work for a year what other way this is the perfect way to go and get a good taste of what the climbing in Europe is like for a season, not just for like a short smash and grab trip, which is what we normally do. And each of these uh, North faces has a little bit of a different element to them. Some of them like the Matterhorn are a little less technical, but very long and very high altitude. And some of them are uh, more straightforward rock climbs, but were crazy hard classic routes back in the 30s when, you know, equipment was a lot heavier and uh, less ideal. So things like uh, Chima Grande and Pease Vidil are more fun <laughs> rock climbs. And so we got to visit Switzerland and Italy and, of course, France to climb all of these different things. And it would be nice to stay in one area, like Chamonix has so many amazing climbs. You could spend a lifetime just in Chamonix. But we wanted to get a taste of like different areas as well. So what better way to do that than the classic routes? Yeah, we based out of Chamonix. So our our lodging and our luggage just stayed in Chamonix. And really, the, the, there's only two of the six that are in Chamonix, the, uh, the Petit Trou and the Conchevas. And then... Uh, in Switzerland, the the Matterhorn and, and uh, Pies Badil, which is on the border, well, they both are on the border between Switzerland and Italy. And then mm-hmm. uh, in the Dolomites, today, Cima Grande di Labaredo. In Italy. Um, and the the other thing, and of course, the Iger in Switzerland. Players like Comici and Cassine, and the Iger is the sixth one. Yeah, learning about these these alpinists, Comici and Heckmeyer and so Cassine much respect for Kribu these guys. Club. It was like they're so strong. It's it's incredible what they they were they were really cutting edges in the thirties <laughs> and forties. Yeah, uh, total badasses. So it was a walk through history. It was really educational for us to to learn about these people and these peaks, which I think a lot of Americans don't have exposure to. And you really have to live there, uh, live in the Alps to, to get the conditions. Uh, it's really hard to smash and grab, which is, which is, we've done a lot of smash and grabs, uh, including the Cassine Ridge and Denali and Fitzroy in Patagonia. We did them in eight days and nine days, Seattle to Seattle. Do you think that has to do with forecasting? Because I know that that's really changed a lot of things for these smash and grab type missions in places like Patagonia and Alaska that would have been you know, unthinkable not too long ago, but is forecasting not quite enough to get some of these tricky conditions in the Alps? I think so. The weather is so fickle. Um, In Patagonia, you can see a good weather window coming when it sweeps across the sea from New Zealand. Maybe a two-week weather window you can see coming and plan a trip and go and get it done. In the Alps, it's sometimes you can see that, but more often, the weather is kind of fickle and changeable. 
uh, for all of these, we basically followed hashtags on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And then when we saw that people climbed it, then we direct messaged them and asked about conditions. Uh, so it, it still requires extra effort besides just the the forecasting. And we were watching conditions for Grand Juras and uh, one person had successfully climbed Grand Juras and said, conditions are good. And we were continuing to watch. We weren't exactly sure. But then the weather lined up perfectly and it was beautiful for a weekend. And so everyone was on Grand Juras because number one, somebody had posted that they climbed it successfully. Number two, it was a weekend with beautiful weather. We had a lot of company, but we were the only ones paragliding off of it. So that was pretty cool. Super awesome experience. Even the forecasting in Pakistan, I was very surprised um, how accurate it seemed to be when we were there. We had a couple people giving us forecasts. And forecasting now is as good as it was uh, 20 years ago for three days. Now it's uh, for mm, like 10 days. Yeah, that's really interesting. It seems like it adds a lot to things. And one of the reasons that it probably makes sense to try to do these extended trips, right? You get to constantly be monitoring things and waking up and assessing the weather for what it actually is, not just what the forecast says it's going to be. Yeah, that's so important to compare what you're seeing in the forecast to what you're seeing out the window and making sure that like a 20% chance of rain is lining up to what you expect it to be outside. Cause it actually seems to be different in different places. One of the weather models we follow dark sky. If it says 20% chance of rain, it means it's going to rain. Cool. So I want to pause here for a second and I'm sure you get some questions about this, but at this point, you know, you're many months in, you're climbing a lot of huge peaks and doing all of this as a couple. And so I kind of want to know, how you make this work. It seems pretty effortless. And I've read that you call yourselves opposites in some ways, but it seems like you find that balance pretty easily. Yeah, uh, we climb a lot together. And I think that definitely goes a long way to climbing well together. We've been climbing together the whole time we've been alpine climbing, which is about uh, six years. We started climbing with the Boeing Alpine Club. Jeff works for Boeing. And they amazingly have a wonderful alpine club but jeff and i always view climbing as an extension of our adventures together so we're always focused on working well together and then the climbing just comes along with that we're both very strong at different aspects of climbing but we have a lot of motivation and we have the same like drive to keep going i would say that k6 was the hardest climb that we did because we just needed to keep going and keep going despite the suffering and all the setbacks. And the fact that we even committed to going to Pakistan, we were both like all in it, both just like ready to go the moment they could let us go. We're so excited about it. So I think having similar stoke levels, similar ambitions and drive and um, motivation to just keep going, I think that's probably what uh, makes us good, strong partners together. And we, we've been married for eight years, so obviously we know each other really well. But um, every climb, we're trying to be better climbing partners, make our communication better, and uh, even even little things like how we each rack our harness and yep. uh, always, always learning to be a little more efficient. We're still 
there's always room for improvement. I think the only advantage of being, well, I guess there are lots of advantages to, to having your, your significant other be your climbing partner is that you live with them and you can plan together and uh, be ready to go. And, and also when we're bibbing on K6 in a double wide sleeping bag, obviously we have no issues cuddling close, which is really <laughs> important for, for people to get over is that you have to spoon on, on <laughs> most of these really cold outline climbs and you have to spoon really tight. It's so much warmer. Uh, uh, can you say more about your different strengths and weaknesses and what you think you each bring to your partnership? I think that Jeff is really good uh, at the sketchy climbing. When the protection is a bit run out, uh, when it's mixed climbing on tiny little nubs, Jeff is really good about taking the sharpen and just getting it done, whatever it takes. Uh, I'm a little bit more of a style snob, and I like to try to free climb things at the detriment of going slow. So I'm working on that. I'm working on uh, just pulling on the gear and going faster. But I think on on hard technical terrain with good protection, uh, that's really what I, I like to climb and, and crush at. But each of us have our own times of weakness. Sometimes Jeff will be at the end of his strength because he's been leading for like hours. and He'll hand the sharp end over to me and I'll, I'll take over and get us to the bivy or vice versa. And then whoever is exhausted and classes in the tent and the other person will boil the water and rub their feet and make sure they stay warm. Yeah, I, I would I would say that Preeti is is definitely the more technical climber uh, on rock and even pure ice and and maybe I'm I'm a little stronger at mixed climbing uh, and sketchy climbing <laughs> uh, and then what else do I bring to the table? Uh, oh, I guess I'm the planner. Yeah, uh, I do all the logistics guy and the planner. And then when when it gets really rough, I think I, I have a little more mental fortitude uh, <laughs> to to say, well, let's just go a little further. Let's just go let's just go look at at Case Essential and and have a, a a peek. I think I'm just really conservative when it comes to wind. I feel like the wind is just gonna rip right through me and blow me off the mountain. But we're always fighting over who can carry the heavier pack. I'll be like, no, I want the heavier pack. And Jeff will be like, no, I want the heavier one. <laughs> that seems like a nice problem to have. <laughs> um, and so I guess before we get to Pakistan, I also want to know a little bit about training. Um, maybe both before this whole trip, before going to Shalten, what you were doing leading up to this huge year you had planned. And then also I'm wondering if you were doing any additional training, you know, while you were traveling or if you were feeling like, Nope, we're just being present and the climbs that we're doing are our training. Uh, we have worked through the um, eight-week course for uh, mountain climbing with the Uphill Athlete. And that's been a pretty great program just to give us ideas of what to do. And I hadn't done any weight training before that, but I noticed huge improvements in strength. And I actually tore my ACL before we climbed Cassine, like four months before. And I worked through that whole program and I got so much strength back in my legs. Then we went and crushed Cassine and that was super cool. So we, we did have eight weeks of confinement uh, in Chamonix where France was totally locked down. 
so we did do some uphill athlete programs. So a lot of cardio and strength training. We were allowed to go running for an hour every day. That's what we were allotted with confinement. Yeah. This was all the training that we were doing when we couldn't get to the mountains. I think if I could, I would focus a lot of my energy just to go climbing more. If I can climb more alpine climbing or anything, I would increase my cardio so much. I think that would be a huge benefit. But because we have jobs, because we were in confinement, the best option that we could have uh, was training with uphill athletes. Um, If we could have Colin Haley's lifestyle, for example, and just run around the mountains nonstop, we would be even more fit. (laughs) All right. So now it's time to go to Pakistan. And it seems like this was just a perfect culmination to the year. I imagine that that's kind of your intention when you pick this objective. But at the same time, it must have seemed like a huge leap um, to go from kind of these not quite as high mountains to this huge uh, 7,000 meter peak. Yes, absolutely. The the highest we had been before was summoning Denali twice. So 7,100 meters is a lot higher than Denali. I guess our, our main objective was just to go on an, an expedition and know what it's what it's like because even we've seen so many presentations about expeditions but you still can't you can't picture it being at a base camp for months and months sleeping in a tent for months and months and like figuring out your own objectives and conditions on your own and how to approach because you don't have exact approach beta for anything so you're you're doing reconnaissance everywhere up all the little valleys and up the glaciers. So really, we just wanted to go on an expedition and then play around in the mountains. And then we did have the goal of repeating the, this uh, this route on K6 West that Scott Bennett and Graham Zimmerman put up in 2015, which was a really beautiful route. We were just really inspired by this route and this peak, and we thought it'd be it'd be amazing to repeat a route first before we go and try to do something new. In the end, we climbed uh, a little differently than they did. We climbed up their descent route, uh, which was a little easier than their their more technical mixed climbing route on the Southwest Ridge. And then uh, we also wanted to finish their project and go over to K6 Central, which was just a, uh, a pretty easy traverse and then a steep, snowy climb up the west face of K6 Central. Uh, and then our stretch goal was to go all the way to K6 Main. In the end, that was, that was, that was too far. That was too much of a stretch. It was too windy at the uh, time. But we're shocked that we got on the mountain. Yeah, so what I kind of want to know about now is, like you said, you're there for months, right? But the climb only ends up taking a couple of days. What's going on in all that time you spend preparing? And what are some of the tactics that you're going to employ to try to get up this big mountain? It takes so long to properly acclimate for a 7,000-meter peak. The previous uh, highest point we'd ever climbed, like Jeff said, was Denali, which is 6,100-some meters. And 7,000 is quite a lot higher than that. Uh, We're so lucky to have Colin Haley on the expedition with us because he has 
so much experience with altitude alpinism. He's been to this range, to the Karakoram, seven times. So he was the one who was holding us back a little bit. We thought, oh, yeah, we're acclimated. We're ready to go. Uh, let's go attempt something. And he was holding us back like, okay, I'm not quite sure if you're completely acclimated yet. It takes about a month to acclimate for 7,000 meters. We first went over to Kapura um, to acclimate. And that has a really good view of the west face of K6. And that's where we saw that climbing on the ridge, uh, which is the southwest ridge that Graham and Scott climbed, um, looked good, but the face looked really good. And perhaps it's because it was later in the year and it was in maybe better conditions than when they had it, that it ended up being an easier line to go straight up <laughs> the long, long icy snowy slope to the shoulder and then from the shoulder traverse up and over to the, the summit. But we got on a bunch of different peaks, um, but didn't summit anything else, but got to see a lot of different angles, which is so important because half of what you're doing when you're out there is exploring because even though you have information, it's available. It's really, really hard to piece together what it looks like. Even just knowing which peak is what, what the names are, how the topography is. When you're in the Alps or in the Pacific Northwest, people say like, oh yeah, I climbed Stewart. And you know what peak that is. You know the topography. You know what valleys are near it. But when you say, oh, I climbed uh, Changui Tower, you're like, which which peak is that? Oh, it's a sub-peak of uh, Amenbrock in that surge. And you're like, uh, which sub-peak? There's like 20 of them. It's, it's interesting. Really, the first week, we were at base camp, which is at 4,000 meters. Uh, all three of us didn't do anything. And then after that, we you have to go really high and then come all the way back down to base camp and then go really high again and then all the way back down. Uh, so we got to 5,600 meters on Kapura and then came all the way back down. And then we went up K6 to do some reconnaissance and got to 6,200 meters and then came all the way back down to base camp. We spent maybe four or five weeks away from base camp out of the two months, just being up in the valleys and being high and sleeping high. Uh, but our acclimatization schedule was five or six weeks just to feel like we were ready for a, a final assault on K6. Yeah, and so Preeti alluded a little bit to being late in the season, and it seems like you ended up climbing in October. Is that the typical climbing season for this part of the Karakoram? That is really late. Uh, usually it's July and August and sometimes into September. Our original plan was to be there three full months, uh, June, July, August, and that was pushed to September, October. That's really unusual because it's so cold. And the days are a lot shorter. And so we really, every day we had to, we were trying to be in a tent before sunset, which we usually, we want to climb into the night as much as possible and go as far as we can. But it was just, it was just too cold. And I would say even that it, we had good weather on our final assault. It was a little warmer perhaps than it would be at that time of year. 
um, because after we came back down, it did suddenly drop down even colder. But once the sun disappears, everything gets way colder. And these valleys are so deep. When we were at base camp, the sun would disappear behind the tall peaks nearby four times. So we had four sunrises or five sunrises and sunsets in a day because it just kept disappearing behind the peaks. And it would get so cold when the sun disappeared. Um, we had experience with this on Denali uh, where, you know, the sun doesn't actually set in the summer. But when it gets or when it dips behind the horizon, it gets drastically colder. So, I mean, even if it doesn't set, there are times when it's like night and it just gets so much colder. So we had to d uh, jump in the tent on K6 when it got that uh, much colder during the night. But besides just the cold in the shorter days, uh, the jet stream happened to be pretty close to K6 when we are climbing. And it was gusting something like maybe 30 miles per hour up near the summit and pretty constant at like 20, 20 miles per hour, just blowing over us. And when you're at altitude and it's already kind of cold, the wind just whips right through you. And I think that was probably the hardest challenge for me was pushing on through this wind where your face is getting blasted by it with snow and cold. I think the temperatures went down to negative uh, 20 Celsius when we're on K6. Yeah, that was the that was the morning low according to our, our forecaster and it, it felt about right. But typically... Uh, October has significantly less precipitation. So we were lucky to have a big giant window without precip, but we were unlucky to have the jet stream at, at the summit. And we were considering bringing our paragliders, but you know, with the extra bulk and extra weight of bringing them, we decided not to. And I'm glad we didn't because I don't think we could have flown off with that type of wind. We did also bring a pretty full rack of rock gear in case we did the traverse from central to Maine. And if we had the weather. The full traverse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if we had the weather, it's it would be totally doable if you had enough days without precip and and not to jet stream at the summit. Was there any like surprising things about climbing this late in the season? Like, Would you recommend this to uh, future parties who want to go to this zone? Or would you still recommend going a little bit earlier like you had originally planned? I think it's pretty miserable climbing that late in the season. So I would recommend going earlier, probably. Uh, unless you're planning on climbing lower altitude peaks, perhaps that's um, an option. But it was cold. Go earlier. So I want to hear a little bit more about the route and your path over from K6 West to Central. And we know that that hadn't been done before and that Scott Bennett and Graham Zimmerman had thought about it. And I'm kind of curious why you think this hasn't been done before, not just by Scott and Graham, but uh, by other parties. You've mentioned it's kind of a maybe a low-hanging fruit. And so I'm curious why you don't think it's really seen that much attention. I just don't think many people have gone out there. Uh, this was the second ascent, uh, or sorry, third ascent of K6 West. And um, the first ascensionists, Ian Wellstead and Raphael Slavinsky, looked over at Central, but didn't go to attempt it. But from their vantage point, it looked quite doable. And then with their their route was quite technical and looked harder than the route that we climbed uh, and also harder than the Southwest Ridge. 
And then Graham and uh, Scott, when they climbed to K6 West, they wanted to go over to Central and bag the first ascent of that, but they uh, didn't have the weather for it. An impending storm forced them to come back down off the mountain. Um, but they would have gone to continue it and finish it. I just think there are so many things to do in the Karakoram, and the logistics of getting out there are kind of complicated. I think that it was just waiting for someone to go and do it. K6 hasn't really gotten a lot of attention. I know like Steve House and, and lots of other top alpinists have looked at the north face from the Cherokee side which is straight up and very technical. Very imposing. It's, it's pretty vertical, really, really hard mixed climbing, and more more importantly, really objectively hazardous. And I don't know if it's been said, but K6 Maine has only been summited once uh, in 1970. So that's 50 years ago. I think it's about time K6 Maine gets another uh, repeat. Yeah, maybe that can be the next thing on your list. <laughs> cool. So like you said, you got a ton of beta beforehand. You went to Patagonia. You went to the Alps. You were doing all these things, you know, with this plan to go to Pakistan on this big expedition. And now I'm wondering, in retrospect, what you think of all that preparation? Was there stuff that you wish you had known or wish you had done differently in your training? Or, um, yeah, I'm kind of wondering what some of the takeaway points were that you can apply maybe moving forward. If I did something different, I think it would be bringing a couple of different things. I would bring an inreach to base camp so that we can communicate with our base camp crew when we're on the peak. Uh, as it was, we had a satellite phone and an inreach, but we could only communicate with our tour operator, Ali Saltoro, who was awesome, but then he would have to call our base camp. So it was a bit a uh, game of a telephone there. And I would also bring probiotics because... As careful as we tried to be, we still had a couple of digestive issues, and probiotics would have been pretty helpful to keep everything in check. It's it's tricky to climb a high-altitude peak and also try to stay healthy in a foreign country. We all got really sick, even though our, our cooks were all very sanitary and everything was washed and all the food was was healthy. We didn't have any, any meat at base camp, pretend our vegetarian. Still, we all just had issues. Um, Colin had it the worst. He got really bad food poisoning that, that set him back for over a week. Yeah. Everyone talks about it. Everyone talks about how the uh, gastrointestinal problems will bring them down. And I was like, oh, I've been to India before. I know what to do. I know how to handle this. Just, you know, don't drink the water and be very sanitary. But no, it still gets just somehow. And Colin had to call off his trip eventually because of the um, illness he had. And that really sucks. But that was one thing I really wanted to get out of this trip was how do you do an expedition? Even the little things like how do you take a dump at, at base camp? <laughs> how do you shower? Some people just don't shower for months at a time and just bring enough change of clothes. Uh, but it's, it's <laughs> cold at base camp. <laughs> and just all the little little things it was just such a cool experience to go on an expedition just go to a remote valley and play around so you can kind of hear how much noobs we are at this we haven't this is our first big expedition our first big trip to the bigger ranges to the himalaya to the karakoram 
And it was eye-opening in so many different ways. You know, nobody expects us on our first trip to the big ranges to actually accomplish anything. Uh, and we had extra difficulties just in getting there with COVID. I think we just like kept persevering and probably surprised everyone by actually accomplishing something. And even though it might not be the craziest, biggest, wildest climb, it's a huge accomplishment for us. And in this time period with COVID, I think we're pretty lucky to have some solidarity because no one else is out there. We were joking how we're probably the only ones for, you know, in the Karakoram at that time, which wasn't 100% true. There are other expeditions who went out, but it was very, very, very quiet. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Like you said, um, you felt like no one really expected this out of you guys. And it seems like since getting back, you've gotten a lot of media attention. Has that changed anything for you guys? What's that experience been like? <laughs> I miss uh, base camp where we're completely cut off from the internet, from social media, from everything. Sometimes I wish I could just go back there <laughs> and ignore it all. But um, I think we're super lucky. Now you're in Hawaii. <laughs> I'm sure getting a nice little rest and relaxation and warm temperatures, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, are you already planning sabbatical number two, or is it back to full-time work for a while while you make a new plan? We keep briefly talking about it. I think we'll need two years to save up some money again. But if we do another sabbatical in two years, I think I'll focus more on rock climbing and technical climbing, just so I can focus on raising my technical skill level. Plus, it sounds like a lot of fun. I was planning sabbatical number two before we started sabbatical number one. <laughs> I think that we did it right the way we did it, going to uh, several different places, but for an extended period. I think it's so much easier than trying to travel quickly. And I recommend it to everyone. Uh, it reduces your impact on the environment. You get a really good feel of a place. and you also save a lot of money just being in one place at a time. So if I did it again, yeah, I, I think we would do very similar things because it was ideal. We were pretty immobile because we had so much stuff. So uh, much stuff. <laughs> for alpine climbing and, and skiing and back, backcountry skiing and having like five different boots. Uh, so next time, like Preeti said, I, I think we'll want to focus on more pure rock climbing and maybe be even a little more nimble uh, to travel around the, the crags in Europe and North America. Right. It seems like going to warm weather destinations as compared to cold weather destinations would really cut down on the amount of stuff you have to schlep around with you and maybe leave a little bit more room for flexibility. Absolutely. You should have seen how many duffels we had at each airport. It was a bit insane. We brought two pairs of skis each to Chamonix, and I think we got to use them twice before everything shut down. That was a bummer. All right. So is there anything else you guys want to share while we wrap this thing up? It was really quite a fantastic experience to go to Pakistan, to be in base camp, and really make friends with and more like family uh, with our two cooks, Azar and Isak. I I miss them already. I miss their kicking. I miss being at base camp. It was lovely to spend time with Colin Haley at base camp and playing a lot of chess. It's an amazing experience. Even if we hadn't climbed an unclimbed peak, it would have been so rewarding. And I highly encourage everyone to go out 
to Pakistan. It's it gets a bad rap, but it's it's a lovely place, and I think it's uh, unfair. This is a real treat. Uh, we've been listening to Cutting Edge podcast since the very beginning, and we're really honored to to be here. Thank you, Lauren. Preeti Wright will describe the K6 climb and their other adventures for the next American Alpine Journal. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation, and maybe it makes you think about how you might pursue your own dreams. Certainly not everyone is lucky enough to be able to take a year off from work, but I think the ideas Preeti and Jeff expressed here, planning and focus, perseverance and partnership, apply to much shorter and less exotic adventures as well. Wherever your dreams take you, consider Hilleberg the Tentmaker a reliable partner with bomb-proof tents for every kind of mountain adventure. See the full range at hilleberg.com. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, wishing you happy climbs.